Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Join us for an in-depth look at Iowa agriculture. Here's your host, Riley Smith. The temps are dropping off quite a bit now, but if you're like me, you're going to stay strong as long as you can before turning the heat on to save on electricity. Welcome to this week's edition of Weekend Ag Matters. I'm Riley Smith. Russ Parker, Dustin Huffman, and Mark Magnuson will join us later on in the show. As for right now, let's start with a quick look at the news headlines. A car dealership turned restaurant is where you'll find Iowa's best breaded pork tenderloin for 2022. Lids Bar and Grill in Wacon, in the northeast corner of the state, has won the 20th annual contest presented by the Iowa Pork Producers Association and managed by its restaurant and food service committee. Each third pound tenderloin is cut and twice tenderized at Quillen's Food Ranch in Wacon. At the restaurant, the never frozen meat is hand breaded to order, dipped in milk, then dredged through a seasoned breading. The deep fried favorite is served with lettuce and mayo on a lightly buttered and toasted bun, baked fresh daily also at Quillen's. Sandwiches include a side of crinkle cut french fries. Chef Phil Carey, a tenderloin finalist judge, described the sandwich as having great pork flavor with a wonderful breading that greatly complements the overall sandwich, as well as a perfect size of bun-to-pork tenderloin ratio. The Lydiards are Wacom natives who opened the eatery in July of 2020. Dan Lydiard had operated Westside Auto Sales on the site for nearly a decade. However, when car sales plummeted during the early months of COVID-19, he reduced his inventory and renovated a portion of the office, showroom, and shop for the restaurant. The Lydiards had no prior experience in food service. Since being named among the top five Tenderloin finalists earlier this month, Tenderloin fans have been flooding in from all over the state. The business went from selling about 25 pounds of loins per week to 35 to 40 pounds a day. A drive-up window accommodates carry-out customers. IPPA's Restaurant and Food Service Committee will officially present the Best Tenderloin Award at the restaurant on Tuesday, October 18th. Lids will receive $500, a plaque, and a large banner to display. The Tenderloin Contest recognizes Iowa dining establishments that offer a hand-breaded or battered pork tenderloin as a regular menu item. To win, businesses must be open year-round. The winners are announced as part of Porktober 22, or National Pork Month, which celebrates the state's dedicated pig farmers and the great product they produce. In other news, the United States Supreme Court began hearing oral arguments on Tuesday for the case of National Pork Producers Council v. Ross. In 2018, California voters approved a ballot initiative, Proposition 12, that established confinement standards for animals sold as meat in the state. The law calls for sows to be housed in larger group pens as opposed to the almost across-the-board industry standard of individual gestation crates. The law becomes further complicated because it applies to all livestock sold in the state for meat, even if it was grown outside the state of California. The pork producers argue that the case violates the Dormant Commerce Clause, which prohibits states from excessive burdens on interstate commerce. Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley on Tuesday talked about the beginning of the oral arguments in the Supreme Court and where he thinks the case is heading. Well, if the court rules against California, I don't think we'll have to step in. If the court will rule otherwise, we ought to step in. We have the power to do it under the one of the 18 powers of Congress is to regulate foreign and interstate commerce, and that surely falls in that area. But I believe we got a good chance that the court would throw it out. Uh, I've been reading uh, commentary on the potential case, and I get that feeling. More than 99% of the pork sold in California is produced outside of the state's borders, which means that producers outside the state would bear the largest share of costs in order to retrofit their operations to comply with Prop 12. 
And that's all the time we have for news headlines this week. Check out the rest of our daily news stories on iowaagnet.com. We'll go ahead and kick it over to Russ Parker with his faith-based food for thought here on Weekend Ag Matters. Dustin offered some sage words of advice this past week. Fear of heights is emotional, but fear of falling is prudent. And I'm especially glad that I'm not a bird. If I were a bird, you'd find me perched on the lowest branch possible. And flying more than three or four feet off the ground would not be an option. I drove by Adventureland the other day and noticed a giant swing ride high in the air. And I thought, why do they call these kinds of venues amusement parks? Anything that is over 250 feet up and goes around in circles, no less, does not fit my description of amusing. What got me started on this was watching a trailer on the TV for a Sylvester Stallone movie called Cliffhanger. You have got to be kidding me. Immediate toe curl and weak knees. And it's probably no surprise I don't ski. Taking a ride in an open two-seater suspended on a cable with one's feet dangling in midair, you can have my lift pass. Oh, another favorite. Elevators in tall buildings, especially those that are open that go on the outside of the elevator shaft. And based on more than one experience, I don't care if people see me facing the inside wall or even on my knees on the ascent. And I never, ever look down to see that space between the arrival floor and the elevator. Anxiety plus. And a few years ago, I was talking to one of our affiliate owners. He's got a tower out east of town, which apparently needed a bulb changed. You know, the ones that flash a red light. I am so glad there are people who do that. Going up 427 feet with a light bulb in my pocket is just not my idea of an adventure. And there are so many other quote-unquote thrills that terrify me, like parachuting out of a perfectly good airplane, parasailing, zip lines, elevated glass walkways, even manhole covers on the sidewalk. I avoid walking on those at all costs. But in my fears and phobias about heights, there is one height event that presents every confidence and no fear for me. That day when the heights of heaven open up and my voice in confidence joins the singing. Hope you're looking forward to that day too. Food for thought, I hope. This is Russ Parker. Have a blessed day. Thanks, Russ. That's it for segment one on this week's episode. Coming up after this short break, Dustin talks with Megan Anderson of Iowa State University Extension about the Asian copperleaf weed. This is Weekend Ag Matters. Every detail matters when building a winning game plan. That's why the Cyclones and Hawkeyes rely on better, cleaner-now biodiesel to power their team buses on game days, delivering success on the field, in the field, and in the environment. Make biodiesel part of your game plan by visiting IASoybeans.com. Biodiesel. Request it. Grow it. Use it. This message brought to you by the Iowa Soybean Association and the Soybean Checkoff. 
Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's your host, Dustin Hoffman. Welcome back to the second segment of Weekend Ag Matters. I'm Dustin Huffman. Asian copper leaf may not be something you've heard of too often. That's because it hasn't shown up in Iowa all that often, but we have seen it. There was an outbreak in 2016 in Blackhawk County. We also saw some again in 2018, and now it's been found again in 2022. I called up Megan Anderson at Iowa State University Extension to tell us about this weed and what we need to know about it, especially as we might be spotting it more and more going through our fields during this harvest season. Right now we're on the phone with Megan Anderson of Iowa State University Extension. And Megan, we're talking today about a plant called Asian copper leaf. Tell us a little bit about what it is. Well, that's a great question. There's a lot that we don't know about it, but uh, it is an annual weed, so it reproduces by seed every year, Um, and and it's from native to parts of Asia as well as Australia, and it's just a new find here in Iowa uh, that we've discovered in several crop fields, and it has us on a little bit of heightened awareness because we do know that there are reports of herbicide resistance from its native range and we don't know how it got here and so it's just a very unusual find for us um, and we want to make sure that we can as best understand what potential threat it might pose to our crops as possible. All right speak to where it's been found so far in the state if you could please. Well so the first find was in Blackhawk County near Cedar Falls in a seed corn field and actually we uh forgot but there was another find in a seed corn field near Humboldt, Iowa two years later in 2018 so 2016-2018 and now uh this year we found a third find of it um underneath a soybean canopy in Grundy County about 30 miles or so from the first find. Now tell us how how it's identified what it looks like you know and, and so our listeners know what they're looking for. Yeah so uh, Probably the biggest thing that uh, has made people notice it so far seems to be that it forms kind of a thick mat of plants underneath the crop canopy at harvest. And so every report that we've received so far has basically been around harvest time. Um, And up close, the plants are pretty nondescript looking. If anybody's familiar with copper leaf species, it looks very much like any other kind of copper leaf you might run into. It's got, you know, alternate leaf arrangement sort of like an elongated egg-shaped leaf that's pointed at the tip with small teeth around the outside. But the big key this time of year, um, or at least in the fall, is that it has these uh, things called bracts, which are modified leaves associated with flowers. And they have these large circular or almost heart-shaped bracts that surround the Um, the flowers where they're producing seed. And so that's probably the most obvious thing that somebody might notice on the plant and how we would differentiate it from other acalypha or copper leaf species. So as you mentioned before, though, it does have some traits of herbicide resistance. Can you speak to what uh, information we do have on that? Yeah, so there's uh, basically two different sources that that we have found reports of herbicide resistance. One is a USDA risk assessment report for this species that happened in 2012 that actually notes a research study that uh, from China uh, referring to it as a glyphosate-resistant species. And so we don't know whether that's 
you know, one biotype or whether the stuff here could also be uh, glyphosate resistant. Those are things that we would really like to know. Um, and then we use a, a weed science uh, sort of official reporting site for um, resistance reports. And, and they have a note about uh, a PPO or group 14 resistant population that's re- that was resistant to the product of fomesifen in soybean in China, which is, uh, you know, not, not as common maybe in the last couple of years, but definitely in the last decade, that's been a very common herbicide used in soybeans here in Iowa. Now, we obviously know that if you run across it, that pulling it's probably the most efficient way to kill the thing if there's not a large patch of it. But if, if a farmer were to come across it or see it definitely this time of year, we're out in the fields, what, what's the best uh, option for them, how they should progress once they've seen it? Yeah, so at this point, uh, we expect that if it's in a field that's been harvested, that it, it's probably frozen out at this point and is in the process of, you know, degrading and likely had mature seed on it that have probably been dropped to the soil already. Of course, if the plants are still alive or if that seed hasn't been dropped, a pulling and removing it at this point would absolutely be the best effort. But uh, we would definitely like to be alerted to its presence if somebody finds it to make sure that we're getting an appropriate ID and so that we have a better understanding of uh, how widespread this is and how big of a threat it poses to agriculture. The more we know about it, the better we can assess uh, what needs to be done to to best manage it. Now, uh, as you mentioned, there were discoveries in 2016 and 2018. How widespread were they? And does does this outbreak or this discovery look a little more widespread or does it look about the same? As best I can tell, I'm much more familiar with the 2016 outbreak that um, this one this year looks extremely similar, just shockingly how uh, thick it is underneath the crop canopy. So, you know, one of our big questions is, is it surviving herbicide applications early or does it truly just tolerate shade that well and it's emerging very late in the growing season? Um, And and so, so we know that it's, it's pretty thick under the canopy when people find it. So that tells us that it's not the first year uh, that it's likely been there. But what's interesting with this one is there was a little slope to the field. So we could see how it appeared to have moved kind of with that uh, maybe water movement across the surface of the soil. And that definitely, uh, it, it seemed to prefer those kind of heavier, darker areas, but definitely very widespread, similar to the other one that I'm familiar about. And that's definitely another consideration if someone were to find it in a field, right, that that we know that the, these seeds are going to move in different methods. And probably one is going to be via water movement or movement across the surface of the soil. But one of the bigger ones, especially this time of year, is moving with equipment. And so keeping that in mind, if somebody were to find it, to take as much caution as possible not to infest it into another field uh, would be very important. Uh, last question I guess I have for you is, do we have any idea if it shows up more in corn or soybeans? And if so, uh, or whichever way it goes, is there any, what danger does it pose to the plant? Is there any uh, anything that would, that would pose immediate dangers to the plants around it? So those are uh, all big questions that we have. Obviously, you know, this year the find was in soybean, but it was not the first year that it was present in that field. And of course the field had been in corn the year prior. Uh, So uh, it seems to survive well underneath a crop canopy. And obviously when it's there and it's as thick as it appears to be, um, it is 
stealing water and nutrients from our crops. We don't know how dramatic that effect is. Uh, we don't know how much of the seed that it, it produced is going to be mature enough and survive over the winter to be a problem next year, but we'll certainly be following it closely. And, and like we said, there's just a lot of unanswered questions at this point that we would like to understand more about. And so, so we'll definitely be paying attention to these known areas of infestation next year so that we can get a better idea of uh, all of the answers to some of the questions that we have. All right, so say I'm a farmer out there and I come across this weed and I know you guys want to be alerted. What's the best way for us to get in contact? Uh, Certainly contacting the Iowa Department of Agriculture uh, is the first thing that we would ask people to do. So there's two options, one of which is the phone number 515-725-1470 or emailing entomology at iowaagriculture.gov. That way that we can sort of triage these um, identifications, make sure that they're identified properly and be able to better track them in the future. All right. Well, Megan, we thank you so much for taking the time to teach us about the Asian copper leaf plant, and hopefully we'll have good news about it in, in years to come. Yes, I, I hope we can eliminate it. That would be the best news. All right, that is Megan Anderson with Iowa State Extension here on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Well, that's it for segment two here of Weekend Ag Matters. We're going to take a short break, and then Mark Magnuson will be in to wrap the show up. October is Pork Month, and in Iowa we have no shortage of pork producers to celebrate. In all, there are 147,105 Iowa jobs created by the pork industry through direct, indirect, and induced jobs, and those jobs in turn create $8.64 billion in labor income. Make sure you support one of Iowa's most important industries by enjoying some farm-raised Iowa pork this month. This message is brought to you by your friends at the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here is Mark Magnuson. Mark Magnuson here for the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, and we are here on Between the Pods, and I'm joined by Maury Hill. Maury, it is a beautiful day out here, and we're in fact just a few paces away from where your friend Mike was helping you to do some combining here of your soybean field. First of all, could you tell us where we are at and a little bit of the history of this site as a farm? Well. Thanks for being here, Mark. We are just on the west side of Perry uh, on what was originally my grandparents' farm, and we just started opening up the field today to combine these beans. Now, Maury, I asked you a very important question a little bit ago, and that is, how do you know when it is time to get in the field and start harvesting these beans? Well, you always look at the calendar and figure back when you planted, but the the best way I was taught from my dad and my grandpa was just to come out and, and taste test and feel the beans and you can tell whether they're ready to go or not. It's just it's just one of those things you know. And I was going to say, that that's more of an intuition thing. I don't think you're going to probably get taught that at agronomy classes at Iowa State. I don't think so. I, I, I don't think there's any uh, IT program that will tell you that either. So we actually are out here in the field as you can see and Maury and Mike, they've been doing some combining, getting these beans out. Maury, you mentioned to me that you did get these beans planted a little bit later than if, in an ideal scenario, you would have been in the field a little bit earlier this year, but it didn't work out that way. Correct. Our, our April was so cold and wet that hardly a wheel turned in this area, and so uh, 
uh, my corn didn't get planted, finished till about mid-May, and then we turned right around to beans. So these beans got planted right before Memorial Day, about the 22nd or 23rd of May, which is, you know, ideally, I would have liked them in the field, in the ground, a month sooner. Have you ever had to plant that late before, or was that a new experience for you? Oh, no. You, you've been at this long enough. You get all sorts of places over the calendar. So it, it wasn't new. It's just nothing that we like to do. And that is another important point. As a farmer, how important is it to be adaptable because that calendar is always shifting? Oh, it's it just goes with the job. you you got to be flexible and just roll with whatever, you know, nature throws at you and be able to deal with it. And, you you know, you make the best of whatever you've got. And, Maury, how long have you been farming? Uh, I started part-time farming with my father in 80 right after I got married. And I had off-farm income for the first 20 years, but I've been farming full-time since 2000. And, Maury, have you seen these yield numbers continue to climb each and every year? Is it almost like clockwork that the next year it just seems like because of the hybrids and all the adaptable traits and everything and the technology has just caused those numbers to climb? It, it has, Mark. And it, and I, I attribute that to our genetics and to, you know, just the research that goes into the stuff we plant nowadays. And But the one thing is, if you don't get that bump every year, you think something's wrong. And so you, uh, I take it with a grain of salt. You, you expect a little bump year after year, but, you know, you got to have both sides of the line to get average. Maury, do you ever stop and think about that when you first started planting soybeans, just how different things are compared to now? Oh, my gosh. Uh, yes, you know, when I started with my father, we were on, you know, 40 to 38 inch rows and, you know, uh, populations, we weren't pushing them either on soybeans or corn. And now here we are in this field, they were drilled beans into standing corn stalks, so they're no-till. And uh, I'm not sure what my grandfather my father would say about this, but that's just what we do nowadays. And are you a big advocate of the no-till? Uh, I, I am, you know, with uh, all the emphasis on on climate and, and, and carbon reduction. If there's something we can do to help keep that carbon in the soil, it helps farmers, it helps me, it helps my bottom line, and it also helps the environment. So I, I think no-till is, uh, is the way to go. And you also think about it, Maury, someone that could be in your spot, who knows, 50 years down the line, hopefully still being able to farm this ground, it goes into the sustainability aspect of it too. That's another big word in this, this day we live in, is, is sustainability, and so, you know, I think I'm sustainable because I'm here standing talking to you. But you know, like you say, whoever comes after me, I want them to be able to stand here and talk to somebody else if they're sustainable also. And Maury, not just soybeans, you also plant corn. What else goes into your operation? How many acres do you farm? I farm about, row crop, about 300. 150 of corn, 150 of soybeans on a rotational basis. So I'm considered a small farmer by t today's standards, but by working with my neighbor who also has about the same amount of acres, we can make it work and still be profitable and, and hopefully sustainable. And more you mentioned just got the combine rolling for beans. About how long will it take you to get done with beans and then start thinking about corn? Well, uh, once we get done here, we'll, we'll move up to northern part or southern part of Boone County and uh, start up there where Mike lives and where I grew up at. And we figure on a good day, if things go right, we can do 25 to 30 acres a day. So you can do the math and then as soon as that's done, we'll go right to corn. Maury, there's a lot of different uses for soybeans. You are an Iowa Soybean Association member, so you're well aware of all of the benefits of soybeans, but do you think about that when you're out here farming, all the different things that these beans can do? Well, it's, you know, when I'm out here doing this sort of stuff, I'm, I'm focused on, you know, getting the, the beans into town or into the bin. But also, if I'm in the combine, you think about 
every sixth row of soybeans goes somewhere else. We sell it across the pond or to China, and to me that's amazing that we have that much trade with our soybeans. And so when you think about that, that's really important for our, my bottom line and all soybean farmers in Iowa, that they can contribute to that and hopefully uh, have a better lifestyle. And Maury, does that give you a sense of pride too when, let's say, people from another country, we just had a delegation from Taiwan that was in Des Moines and they were purchasing some crops down the line here just from the state of Iowa because they know that quality. That, that, that's an awesome thing. I never would have dreamed I'd be doing that as, as a board director for the Soybean Association. We actually, uh, my wife and I got to have dinner with them last week in, in Des Moines and visit with them and uh, what trade missions I've been on and with the Soybean Association. It's really uh, positive that we can see those people that want our product, they understand the quality that we, we raise, and that they want it, and that they can put a face to the people that sell them to them. Now, did I hear right? A little birdie told me you just actually were on a trip, weren't you? Uh, I was in Cambodia in June. And what was that trip for? What did you learn about in Cambodia? That trip was for aquaculture, feeding fish. And what, what, what we're trying to do is teach the Cambodians how to use soy meal in their fish rations instead of fish meal because it's being depleted and that they, they can turn to a sustainable food source with U.S. or Iowa grown soy meal in their fish rations and, and, and better their aquaculture and the people that want to eat fish. And does that soy meal get the job done just like fish meal would? Oh, it does. It, and, and from what I understand, it's even better because of the amino acid profile that soybeans have, that it, it's tremendous uh, growth and uh, return of investment for the fish farmer. That was Maury Hill, a central Iowa soybean farmer and a board member of the Iowa Soybean Association. Thank you to Maury for joining us on the show. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of Weekend Ag Matters. Thanks for tuning in. You can find replays of this week's show and all of our Weekend Ag Matters episodes under the podcast tab at iowaagnet.com. For Russ Parker, Riley Smith, and Dustin Huffman, I'm Mark Magnuson. Thanks for listening to Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network.